From the habitual use of um and uh to the evolution of vocal fry. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, April 25th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we unpack the linguistic quirks of our time to understand how language changes and why it makes some people so hostile. The habitual use of a well-placed um might not be such a bad idea when you're used to being interrupted, for instance. We welcome spring to the land with a reminder that the mosquitoes and ticks happen to be ready for the season too. Laura Rohde heads to the Little Eye for a look at a South Dakota farming tradition, plus South Dakota's Poetry Out Loud winner joins us later in the hour. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Well, today I invite you to meet Norm. Who's Norm? Norm is the farming industry's first artificial intelligence agricultural advisor. I know. I'm intrigued, too. Kit Barron is the head of data science and analytics at the Farmers Business Network, which launched Norm into the world last week. And he joins me by phone. Kit does, not Norm. Hey, Kit. Hey there, how's it going? I'm doing well. Tell us a little bit about AI, chat GPT, and developing a, a tool that would assist farmers. Where did you begin? Sure. Well, as I'm sure many of your listeners have been following, uh, there's been a tremendous excitement around chat GPT. And uh, we at Farmers Business Network have been thinking about how we might be able to bring that technology to our farmers. And you know, the first thing we noticed is uh, ChatGPT knows about a lot of different things, um, but a lot of the information about agriculture wasn't quite right. And mm -hmm. so we wanted to take some of the uh, high-quality agronomy data that we have at FDN and train ChatGPT on a new model, which we're calling NORM. Did you? Well, we should tell people who NORM is, because this is named after a famous uh, Nobel Prize winner as well, not the guy from Chess. That's right. Uh, so <laughs> we named uh, Norm, our, our, our uh, agronomist uh, chatbot, after Dr. Norman Borlaug, who's a personal hero of mine. He was the father of the Green Revolution and revolutionized uh, uh, breeding technology in, in wheat back in the 60s and 70s and ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize for his work there and, and then starting uh, founding the World Food Prize, which is essentially the Nobel Prize for, for food and agriculture. Mm -hmm. So I we thought, what better person to pay homage to in, in this latest technology uh, in agriculture than, than Dr. Borlaug? Yeah. The, the, um, the citation on him for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 says he was a vigorous man who can perform prodigies of manual labor in the fields. He brings to his work the body and competitive spirit of the trained athlete, which indeed he was in his high school and college days. And then it goes on to list his scientific achievements, but let's just also let it be known uh, that he worked really, he could work in the field in an intimidating way. So perfect name for this technology. <laughs> However, people are concerned, of course, uh, what AI can do when it's wrong. When the, so tell us a little bit how people are going to interact with this chatbot. Sure. Well, we released Norm uh, last week, and we've seen tremendous response so far uh, with a lot of engaged uh, farmers uh, trying it out. Um, so it's 
nor won't be going vigorously to any, any farm near you anytime soon, except maybe in your phone. Uh, so you can access Norm through uh, fbn.com uh, slash Norm, and you can use it on the phone or, or the computer. And it's essentially a chat interface, so you can type in any question you might have about agriculture, and, and Norm will do his best to respond. Uh, yeah. There are certain areas that he does better at than others, uh, but we're kind of actively learning and, and uh, excited to, to see how folks are using it out in the field. Is it a loop, then, that sort of... Uh improves itself how is it going to get better over time and are we helping it get better over time through our data yeah absolutely so we're um, uh, training it on uh, you know, different topics so the first one we wanted to get right uh, was crop protection and how, you know, how to treat different pests on the field pests and weeds on the field and so that's the one we really invested in for this first uh, kind of test version and uh, we're working on adding uh, weather uh, forecasting, which should probably be in sometime this week. Um, and so basically what we're doing as we've released this out into the wild is seeing the types of questions that farmers are asking and using that to help us determine what we want to add next. We also uh, have an internal uh, feedback process with our, uh, our staff agronomists and staff veterinarians uh, that help us review the quality of the responses to ensure that uh, the recommendations we're providing and, and the information we're providing is as high quality as possible. So, Kit, will this um, AI tool have predictive functions? In other words, um, climate change, no-till, is it going to help you make some of the decisions for sustainable ag? So we're saying right now at this stage, you know, we're really uh, uh, not using, you know, far, uh, farmers shouldn't consider norm. Uh, real agronomic advice just yet. Uh, but uh, Norm it has been trained on an awful lot of information about trip-till, no-till, cover crops, and a wide variety of, uh, of management practices for both kind of conventional and organic farming. Uh, and so we believe it could be a great tool to, to help uh, help make decisions and on the farm. Uh, but right now, it's really not uh, not ready for uh, you should always consult your local agronomist and, and refer to uh, local regulations as well. Kit Barron is with Farmers Business Network, FBN.com. Kit, thanks so much for introducing us to Norm. We look forward to hearing how this uh, unfolds. Thanks so much, and we hope uh, you and all your listeners have a chance to try it out. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. There's no stopping it. Warmer weather is coming. And someday soon, our light spring outerwear will meet up with our winter coats in the back of our closets. That means we'll be showing a little more skin. And as much as we may love the sunny days, so do summertime pests. Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger is our on-call with the Prairie Doc representative today. She's with me on the phone to talk about pests that have skin in the dermatology game. Dr. Evans, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. I love how excited we are to get out the shorts and how immediately we put on the long pants and the long sleeves and hats. <laughs> and that's it's just, just how I roll. It's yeah. classic South Dakota thing, right? <laughs> exactly. We hit 55 degrees and half the, half the town's in pants or out of their pants. But. <laughs> half the town's <laughs> out of their pants. We're not even there yet. You <laughs> know. All right. So dermatology coming up on the Prairie Dock. Give us a broad, before we talk about some of these pests, broadly, what's the show going to be about? 
Yeah, so it'll be a, a full-spectrum dermatology show. We've got two general dermatologists as our guests. So really anything skin-related will be fair game for questions. I'm sure we'll talk about skin cancer um, and other common skin conditions and whatever our viewers surprise us with. Yeah, one of my questions is always, since I've spent my whole lifetime protecting myself from the sun, with a few notable exceptions, so yes, you can find some photos of me with a tan, but very short period of time. <laughs> like, <laughs> no matter how old do we get, we still always have to do this. There's not some point where you say, like, I've been good for this many years. Now I'm going to go get, <laughs> I'm going to go soak up the sun. Probably not. We Darn. probably don't, you know, age <laughs> out of the dangers of UV light exposure, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Some people can have a lifetime of a lot of sun exposure and not doing a good job protecting themselves and never have a problem. And some people are really prone to it. And it probably has to do some somewhat with our um, sort of complexion and some genes that get passed down that predispose us to skin cancer and the like. So um, best to just keep with the SPF, Lori. Yeah. Well, those long pants and long sleeves and hats are good for more than keeping yourself from getting a burn or getting skin cancer. They're also keeping the pests away. Remind us um, some of the ways we can be aware of what happens with mosquitoes and what happens with ticks. Yeah. There's some real risks here. There are, um, you know, I, we, we all, everybody hates mosquitoes, right? There's no um, question that I don't think, I don't think I know anyone who really likes mosquitoes. Um, so I, good motivation for all of us to want to keep them away just because um, the bug bites are such a bother. But the big risk, um, and certainly present in South Dakota in, in high, high frequency some years is West Nile virus. Um, and really the, the numbers of cases of West Nile virus tend to just mirror how how bad the mosquito problem is year to year um, and some of that's not within our control um, so just minimizing the mosquito bites that you get is the best protection from that how important is it for people with um, you know a compromised immune system we talked about this so much with covid um, mm -hmm. but we lost a friend here to west nile virus as she was going undergoing some other treatment for cancer it's especially important for people who have underlying conditions to pay attention to. Right? Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, Lori. Yeah. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, and it's probably not a risk that people think of naturally so much. Um, but certainly West Nile virus, in a lot of people, it causes mild illness, right? Headaches, fevers, body aches, the typical flu-like viral illness. But the people who tend to get more severe cases are the um, older age and immunocompromised. And, and those severe cases, you're right, can lead to death. I mean, people die every year from West Nile virus. Um, and, and usually it's a neurologic sy syndrome. So people will get some progressive weakness and other um, neurologic symptoms. Um, and sometimes that ends up meeting, meaning their respiratory muscles stop working um, or, or other really severe neurologic problems. So how important is it to pay attention to ticks? Most people think Lyme disease, but also just in yeah. general, checking for and preventing tick bites. Yeah, you know, tick tick bites, we think of, in medicine, we think of the tick-borne diseases. And okay. you're right, Lyme disease is probably the most common in the U.S., but there's a whole bunch of them. Um, and which ones are present where, where a given person is living or wherever you travel um, how it just depends on what types of ticks 
or um, inhabit those places. So Lyme disease is a good example. We actually, if you look back at CDC data in South Dakota, the case rates of Lyme disease in South Dakota are really low. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you go to Minnesota or Wisconsin, they are quite high. And that just has to do with um, where this particular tick tends to inhabit in the country or in the Northeast is is a place that this type of tick is really common. Um, But, you know, a lot of experts suspect that that habitat is going to change as the climate continues to change and probably tick-borne diseases might get more widespread even than they are already. Now, did you have a bizarre tick removal home remedy growing up like most of us did? (laughs) You know, I just remember the dogs always having ticks and you having to remove them. And I mean, they're so yucky. You know, (laughs) actually the CDC website has a great sort of uh, picture uh, tip sheet of how how to remove ticks. And they generally recommend against all those home remedies. So like (laughs) don't soak them in alcohol, don't twist just kind of put your tweezers at the base of the skin as far as you can and gently pull out um, is is the basic advice that they have. Um, So there are resources, but if it sounds goofy, like it, it probably simple is probably better. Yes. Simple (laughs) is better. Medical advice is probably this pre-internet. We made up some of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. On call to Prairie Doc, South Dakota public television and on the Prairie Doc Facebook page, it airs. It's Thursday, 7 PM central, six mountain. And our Prairie Doc team rep today has been Dr. Kelly Evans-Hollinger. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, careful listeners to In the Moment will hear plenty of ums and uhs as we engage daily in live conversations about, frankly, complex topics. We also sometimes refer to nonspecific people as they and also to transgender people as they, if that's their preferred pronoun. And yes, you have sent me emails celebrating or complaining about the vocal quality of our guests. And on the days when you're feeling particularly pithy, how the sound of my laugh feels inside your head. Language is changing and linguistic quirks are on display in live radio and in Zoom meetings and in the boardroom and on the street. And now a new book helps explain the history and science behind many of those quirks. It is called, like literally dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And the author is sociolinguist Valerie Fridland. She joins me on the phone. Valerie, welcome. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, and I have to say I was smiling as you were describing the sound of your laugh. I'm sure it's beautiful. <laughs> depends on the day and depends on who's listening. But that, <laughs> that gets to one of the core things about your book is why we get so upset about certain things that we hear that we just, you know, irregardless is not a word. Somebody says, um, too much. Those women sound shrill on the radio or they laugh too much. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to write this book for the general public, because your academic work is, of course, not always, um, you know, put into the world for the rest of us to see it. Right. And you should probably be thankful about that because (laughs) uh, that would put you to sleep for sure. So maybe there is a a message to the madness for that one. But, you know, I, I give a lot of talks and I talk about my research and about linguistics because it's a field that people don't honestly know that much about, especially sociolinguistics, which studies how language interacts and engages with society and social life and things like that. 
And I would find that people would come up to me afterwards and all ask about the same things, <laughs> the things that worried them in their speech or made them feel self-conscious or often that they were worried about in their children's speech or in, in, in uh, young employees. They were always things like like, using literally, non-literally, vocal fry, uh, singular they, things that they saw as changes in a bad way that destroyed English as it was today. I mean, none, none of them ever came up and said, oh, my gosh, I love like. Could people use it more? Not a single person <laughs> has ever said that to me. So I thought, well, why don't I try to give everyone the tools to understand why these things emerge, where they came from, and how, for some speakers, they are actually quite useful, despite the fact that we tend to think of them as empty and vacuous. They're much more sophisticated and complicated than we give them credit for, even if we don't like them. You were surprised in some of this research, too. I bet I was surprised again and again throughout the book, but I bet even you stumbled upon some stuff that you went, huh? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think with the ums and the uhs chapter yeah. in particular, it blew my mind. I knew a lot of it in broad strokes, but as I got into the research for all these features, I think um and uh are so shockingly beneficial from a cognitive standpoint, and that is in such juxtaposition to the way we think of them in everyday life where we hate them and we try to rid our speech of them. But they are doing some useful stuff for us. It's just so surprising how we have such a conflict between the social benefit and the linguistic benefit on that one. Yeah. So speech teachers take note because most of us, it's like the red pen with, you know, there's so many people who have a story of, you know, I'm, I can't write. I'm afraid of writing because I had one bad teacher with a, an aggressive red pen. Somebody had one speech teacher who, you know, threw chalk at them every time they said, um, in a speech or something, you know, <laughs> something like that. What is the benefit of um in a conversation or a presentation? Well, there are a number of different ways you could look at it, the benefit to the speaker and the benefit to the listener. Now, for a speaker, the benefit is that it, it sort of buys them time while holding the conversational floor when they're doing some hefty cognitive retrieval. And that may seem like, okay, they don't know what they're saying, but that's actually not true. What we find is um and uh are more likely when a speaker is going to use an abstract, less common, more difficult, or less familiar word, or if they're going to have a very long, deeply syntactically constructed sentence. So really when we're doing more thinking than less, we tend to um and uh, which should be a sign that people are working hard for you in conversation. The way they benefit a listener is as a flag for one that a speaker is going to continue, so telling you basically not to jump in. But uh signals a short delay, and um seems to signal a longer delay. So they're actually very specific in the information they give you. And the last benefit, which I think is the most surprising, is that they help listeners process new information more efficiently, as well as help them remember it better later. And we know this from giving participants in some experiments pop quizzes on words they heard during the experiment. And when we said an um or a before those, those words, they were better remembered by the participants in the experiment an hour later. Wow. I always think about silence here on the radio and, and how much we try to avoid it. But then we you need a minute to process that high-level thinking. A lot of people, that's totally new for what you, what you just said. Is it more frequently used by women or by people who are expecting to be interrupted or who are often interrupted? Is it a tool to sort of keep the, hold the floor, please? 
Well, there's a really interesting um, trend in umming and eyeing that is differentiated by gender. So if we just look at filled pause use overall, there are a lot of studies that show men using filled pauses overall more than women, which I think surprises a lot of people. And it also is the case that older speakers tend to use more overall filled pauses. But when you look at the breakdown in what those filled pauses are and what they're doing, we find that's the key difference. Women use a lot more um. Men use a lot more uh. And it probably is partially sound symbolism. So if you say the word uh, you look like someone punched you in the gut. <laughs> it's not a very attractive, polite feature and sort of your mouth hanging open. But um is actually a lot more socially, symbolically pleasant. And that might be one of the reasons why we see a rise in it among women. But also we see um now starting to be used as a marker of polite hesitation. So slightly more intentional when you're going to say something that may not be taken well or is a little bit tongue in cheek, you often mark it with an um. And that seems to be the use led by women, which probably plays into what you said, where they're not sure how it's going to be taken or they want to kind of alert listeners to something coming. And that would be something such as, um, I don't think I can go tomorrow, where it's a little <laughs> bit of a polite hesitator before you say, yeah, never, not not in hell, I'm not going with you, right? It's much more polite than that. So it's a really interesting breakdown by gender with our filled pauses. Yeah, hard pass or, um, no thanks. <laughs> Hard cast versus um, no. I think um, no would be taken uh, any time. How often do linguistic changes come from teenagers, young women, uh, subcultures in a community, in a neighborhood, in an urban area, queer culture? How often are you seeing changes come from those places, broadly speaking? Well, I think that the quickest way to answer that is to say it is rare to get changes from anywhere else. If we look at the history of change over time, and I'm not talking about just in contemporary culture, I'm talking about 100, 200, 300 years ago, we find that there are three groups that are primarily in the lead, the young, the female, and the lower classes. Add to that in more recent times, a lot of subcultures um, that were kind of repressed in earlier days, but... For example, the Scots in 17 and 1800s in Britain were a subculture that influenced the, la the language greatly. So we see that subcultures, minorities, but particularly young female members of those groups, as well as the lower classes, tend to be the leaders in language change. And most of the things we think are good today were actually led by the lower class the young and the female in an earlier era. So, for example, when we say you instead of ye, because ye is actually a subject pronoun and you was the object pronoun. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like saying him and me are going to the store. Well, when every time you say you, you're saying him and me because it's an object case pronoun. That was led by women in the lower classes. When you say does instead of doc, again, women in the lower classes. When you say I am walking versus I walk as a progressive sense, again, women and the lower classes. So I think a lot of times people are surprised at the fact that language change is led by the very groups we call out for language change all the time because they are the dynamic forces of language, not because they're the ruin, the people that are leading the charge in ruining language. And yet we never say, hey, I picked up this new phrase from a teenager on Instagram or 
Is... <laughs> well, we might not admit to it, but yeah, they do don't it get credit, time, right? <laughs> <laughs> we don't credit it. You know, I think you know vocabulary is a different thing because that's easily spread, and especially with the internet, you can go viral very quickly. But a lot of the change is led by these marginalized classes and, and women are ones that are more systemic to the language and stick around a lot longer than whether you say Riz or low key today. But yeah. absolutely, we don't thank them for it, even though we embrace the changes at one point, oftentimes. Not all. We do leave some behind. But generally speaking, they are the instigators and innovators in language. So not all language change is political. It can feel like it when people are, are grasping onto the, the language that they learned in, in grammar school and saying, you know, I am the last defense against this uh, degradation of the English language. However, sometimes it's overtly political, and you have a chapter on the pronoun, the singular use of the pronoun they. Give somebody an idea of how to f- reframe how they think about they as a singular pronoun. What's useful here? Sure. I think the interesting thing about singular they is it was actually an organic development, and that's what I trace in the book, that we think singular they came out of nowhere and has become this new politicized word that's been embraced today. But actually, we find singular they used as far back as Chaucer. It's been around for 700 years because it was a way of avoiding the problem of gender reference in indefinite situations. So when I'm talking about people like that person or whoever, both of which were in Chaucer, I mean, not in those exact words, but Mm -hmm. those were the phrasings, that later use was they as the pronoun to refer to that individual entity because it was indefinite gender. So that has been around for hundreds of years. So that naturally has evolved into a more politicized and overt way of avoiding gender reference by anyone who doesn't want to constantly inculcate gender in who they talk about and who they they describe in themselves. And so I think what is hard for us is the fact that, for example, the subject verb agreement issue is they is or they are. And when you're talking about a singular subject and you're using a plural verb with it, it's kind of tough. But again, we can fall back on looking at the history of pronouns. And you was, hold your horses, a plural pronoun. Not only was it only supposed to be used in object position, it was only supposed to be used with plural use. So only when there was more than one you. But when we're talking to our friend Sally and then we say, you did this or you are this, we again use a plural verb to talk to a singular about a singular subject. So they follow the same well-worn course as you did. It's just that we're living it right now, so it feels uncomfortable. But in 50 years, I don't think people are going to have a problem with it because it will just be what we've always done. How Organic change just happened. Yeah, and how fast does it happen? Because I can can remember... Not too long ago, just being crazy about the word irregardless, and it's not a word, and now all of a sudden it is, and it just doesn't bother me anymore. And it happened very quickly during my lifetime. How fast do some of these adaptations take before pretty soon you're going to see it in the New York Times, or it's been accepted into what most people would say is official or normalized speech? Well, it can happen quite fast, but it can also be very, very slow. So it really depends on how well it's embraced and what type of need it's serving. So I think with Singular They, it hit just at a right cultural moment. But if you look at how long Singular They had been in the language before it got accepted, it's been hundreds of years. We can look back at 1600 and find 
grammarian's writing about the incorrect usage of they where he or she should be. Um, actually, they were really more interested in he being there than she at all. <laughs> but that was that was something that has been complained about for hundreds of years. So I would say that one came about pretty slowly. But once it gets picked up, it can be very rapid how fast the change happens. And we see changes occurring within one generation. So, you know, when, when women embrace a change and they use that in their speech as adolescents, they become the caregivers often of the next generation. And so the new change is passed down to those children, allowing very rapid change to occur within one generation. Let's end with the fry. Uh, you mentioned women, and, uh, and I started out talking about women on the radio, which you found uh, have a much higher uh, chance of being criticized for vocal fry, but men still use it more. Tell us a little bit about the fry. Oh, yes. Everybody loves a little fry. Yeah. <laughs> and so both of you and, and I, both you and I are making fun of fry, which is a vocal fold vibration that's a little bit irregular when you're talking and it gives rise to this kind of popping or crackly noise that sometimes accompanies speech at the end of a phrase. And it has been roundly criticized in young women's voices in the United States. But in fact, men fry as well. And in Britain, it's a predominant pattern that men fry much more than women, so so much more that it's been termed a hyper-masculine feature in studies there. So it's clearly not something only women do, despite the reputation it's garnered. But what happens is women's voices tend to be at a higher pitch more generally, and you have to have a really low pitch for vocal fry to happen because it's when the vocal folds slow down and then that's related to pitch. So women's voices going from that high pitch down to the low pitch of fry has a much steeper drop. And I think that's why it's become more salient to us, but also because we tend to notice and police women's voices more than men's, especially when they're in professional arenas. So what's happened on the airwaves in particular in broadcast news, uh, we find that women fry about twice as much as men. And that's probably because in broadcast settings, women's voices have been criticized as being too shrill and too high pitched for the airwaves. So what's the solution? Trying to adopt a lower pitch at certain points. So mm -hmm. women make these excursions into vocal fry to drop their pitch to be taken as more authoritative, having more leadership skills of being more competent. And those are the ratings that we find associated with low pitch versus high pitch. But then, of course, they get criticized because it's new and notable, and we don't tend to like that, especially on women. <laughs> I remember when I first started, it was, you sound like you're reading me a story. Your voice is too nice and too sweet. And so I tried to work on that, and then it was, no, that's fry. Don't do that. I'm like, is there a range? Like, is there like a, a tiny little range where this is perfect for everybody? And the answer is no. So just be yourself. <laughs> Just, exactly. Just be and, you. You know, women particularly can't win because yeah. if you don't have fry, you're too high pitched. And if you don't have either, you up talk too much. And yeah. if that's not the case, then you probably use so too often. So there's something in your speech someone will complain about. Uh, <laughs> but fry seems to be a solution for women to take on a more urban professional feel mm -hmm. in their voice. So the book is like literally, dude, arguing for the good in bad English, the author, sociolinguist Valerie Fridland, and it is a delight from front cover to back. Valerie, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. Of course. I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Lori. Let's take a moment now for Prairie Poetry. 
South Dakota poet Bruce Roseland has penned plenty of his own works, but last year he took the time to recite the work of the state's most influential poet laureate and cowboy poet. Here is Roseland reading The Outlaw by Badger Clark at the opening of the Poetry Walk in Brookings in September. When my rope takes a hold on a two-year-old by the foot, or the neck or the horn, he can plunge and fight till his eyes go white. But I'll throw him sure as you're born. Though the taunt ropes sing like a banjo string, and the laddie goes creak and strain. Yet I got no fear of an outlaw steer. I'll tumble him on the plain. For a man is a man, and a steer is a beast, and a man is a boss of a herd. And each of the bunch, from the biggest to the least, must come down when he says the word. When my leg swings across on an outlaw hoss, and my spurs clinch into his hide, he can rear and pitch over hill and ditch, for wherever he goes, I'll ride. Let him spin and flop like a crazy top, or flit like a wind-whipped smoke. But he'll know the feel my rod here till he's happy to own he's broke. For a man is a man, and a hoss is a brute. And a hoss may be the prince of his clan, but he'll bow to the bit and the steel-shod boot, and own that his boss is the man when the devil at rest underneath my vest gets up and begins to paw and my hot tongue screams at its bridal range then I'll tackle the real outlaw when I get from riled and my senses goes wild and my temper is fresh in its road if you hump his neck just a trifling speck dollars the dime I'm thrown. For a man is a man, but he is partly a beast. He can brag until he makes you deaf. But the one lone brute from the west to the east that he can't quite break is himself. Yay, Badger, indeed. That was poet Bruce Roseland bringing Badger Clark's words to life at the opening of the Poetry Walk in Brookings last fall. In honor of National Poetry Month, we'll bring you the words of other poets all this week, but you might want to take a walk in downtown Brookings and meet some of them yourself. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. I spy, with my little eye, one of the oldest traditions at South Dakota State University. Little International, or Little Eye, is a student-run livestock exposition, and this spring it celebrated 100 years. Laura Rohde with SDPB brings you this story from the dyed green chips of the SDSU Animal Science Area. South Dakota State University animal science major Emily Nold intentionally leads a Hampshire ewe around on the green dyed chips of the show ring floor as judges name her 
champion experienced sheep showman during the 100th anniversary Little International. So I've been involved since I was a freshman. Um, I'm currently a third year senior. So I've been on staff as well as competed showing an animal all three years. And it's just been super rewarding um, being on both sides of it, getting to work with people, also getting to work with my animal, um, getting to be uh, have that competitive aspect of it, but also definitely that learning and memory building and friendship aspect as well. Nold is one of 164 SDSU student volunteers who serve as Little International staff. Little International, or Little Eye as it's fondly referred to by participants, organizers, and alumni, is the nation's largest student-run livestock expo. In addition to livestock shows, Little Eye includes a diverse lineup of agriculture-related contests, like livestock judging, milk quality and products, and a crop show. Along with Hobo Days, Little Eye is SDSU's longest-running tradition. Agriculture science major Cody Gifford is the 100th Little Eye manager. He oversees this 100% student-run event as it celebrates a century-long legacy. It's, it's kind of hard to fathom, really. I mean, this started originally in 1921. There was a couple years where it didn't happen due to scarlet fever in World War II. Um, but 100 years of tradition here. And, you know, I look at it that we've had roughly 150 people on staff every year over 100 years. That's a lot of people that this organization has impacted during their college career here at SDSU. Um, so just knowing that and the legacy behind it, and tonight when we see the stands all packed with alumni, it's just going to be a, it's, it's hard to fathom how many people have been involved in this through its years. Alumni like Matt Gunderson. Gunderson served as the 78th Little Eye Manager. Today, he is the Senior Vice President of Business Growth and Strategic Relations for Farmers National Company, the nation's largest landowner services company. The first in his family to attend a four-year university, Gunderson credits Little Eye with connecting him to SDSU and launching his career. My first time uh, coming to Little Eye was livestock judging. So we'd come for the Friday livestock judging contest and part of what the uh, igniting was was uh, the, the livestock judging coach at the time, Mary Nesville, had placed pretty well in the judging contest and so she sent me a personalized letter and congratulating me and saying, hey, if you ever have an opportunity and you want to come look at South Dakota State, um, you know, and I was, I was a seventh grader at that time, but that it was a spark, right? And then it started igniting and, and then coming to college here, getting on, knew I wanted to be on Little Eye from just having attended from those, you know, judging contests. And so, yeah, it just really, and expand the network, right? Because all of a sudden you got a hundred of immediate close folks that you're, that you're getting to know. Um, across the university and, and across a lot of different geographic areas and so yeah you, you, you got indoctrinated to a large family right at once and it was just a really great experience. For many, Little Eye is a family tradition, explained Laura Berg, Director for Marketing and Communications for the College of Agriculture, Food and Environmental Sciences at SDSU. We've had numerous Little Eye managers who have you know been multiple generations. A father was a manager and then their son. Berg herself is a second generation Little Eye alum. Her mom participated in Little Eye in the 1950s and in the 1980s, Berg served on Little Eye staff and participated in the Lamb Lead. 
Landlead is where Berg met her husband. When I got um, chosen to represent Block and Bridal Club in my freshman year in the Lamb Lead or Ladies Lead contest, I had to construct my own outfit. That was the rule at the time. Now students who participate in Lamb Lead can purchase a wool outfit but I could get help from someone who was in the club on fitting my sheep or grooming it and getting it ready for the show. And so I was in Pearson Hall here at SCSU and I thought I think one of those Berg boys is actually on second floor and he's in block and bridle and his family shows sheep so he could probably help me fit my sheep. The couple has been married 32 years. Today Berg gives back by serving as one of two Little Eye advisors. Berg is among many alumni who gathered in the Agriculture Heritage Museum on the campus of SDSU for a social ahead of the showmanship finals. Laura Wright also attended the alumni event. She was the second female to serve as Little Eye manager during its 77th year. She returned to co-emcee the 100th Little Eye along with Matt Gunderson. An agriculture professional and business owner, Wright said Little Eye remains relevant because it showcases the next generation of agriculture professionals. I think in the next hundred years, it's even more important to show the community about agriculture because there's fewer and fewer folks living in that or, or working in that area. Built on tradition, powered by a vision, was the slogan adopted by all 164 members of the 100th Little Eye staff. As together with their peers, alumni, and SDSU faculty, they commemorate this time-honored event. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Laura Rohde. To view a gallery of photos from this year and past Little Eyes, go online, sdpb.org news. In two weeks, Grace Powell will compete in the Poetry Out Loud National Finals in Washington, D.C. She will bring all of her dynamic recitation skills to represent South Dakota on this stage. But before she does, she is joining me from SDPB Studios in Vermilion at the University of South Dakota campus to talk about and share poetry with us. Grace Powell, South Dakota State Champ, welcome and congratulations. Hi, thank you. Tell, um, me, tell me a little bit for people who don't know what Poetry Out Loud is, how do you describe the competition to other people? Um, basically, it is a competition where you have to memorize a poem and figure out how you would like to perform it. And then you get judged on performing this poem and you're able to compete at a regional level and a state level, and I'll be competing at the national level in two weeks. You are going to share a poem with us today. Is this one that, tell me a little bit about what you're going to share before we start there. Um, the poem that I was going to share today is called The Children's Hour by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, which is a very familiar poet. But um, it's a bit of a longer poem, but it's just about the joys of children and growing up, basically. I think it's from the point of view of someone older, but. Yeah. Grace, yeah. the microphone is yours. Thank you. All right, this is The Children's Hour by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Between the dark and the daylight, when the night is beginning to lower, comes a pause in the day's occupations that is known as the children's hour. 
I hear in the chamber above me the patter of little feet, the sound of a door that is opened, and voices, soft and sweet. From my study, I see in the lamplight descending the broad hall stair, grave Alice, and laughing Allegra, and Edith with golden hair. A whisper, and then a silence. Yet I know by their merry eyes they are plotting and planning together to take me by surprise. A sudden rush from the stairway, a sudden raid from the hall. By three doors left unguarded, they enter my castle wall. They climb up into my turret or the arms in back of my chair. If I try to escape, they surround me. They seem to be everywhere. They almost devour me with kisses, their arms about me entwine, till I think of the Bishop of Bingen in his mouse tower on the Rhine. Do you think, O oh blue-eyed banditti, because you have scaled the wall, such an old mustache as I am is not a match for you all? I have you fast in my fortress and will not let you depart, but put you down into the dungeon in the round tower of my heart. And there will I keep you forever, yes, forever and a day, till the walls shall crumble to ruin and molder in dust away. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, that's Grace Powell, South Dakota's Poetry Out Loud champion. She's headed to national finals here in the days ahead. Beautifully done, Grace. Tell me about your coach and the process of preparing that for performance. Um, my coach uh, is back in Sioux City, uh, Mrs. Diana Woolley, and we have been working on this poem and our two other poems that I'm performing for a few months now. Um, it's really just a lot of repetition of just going over the poem over and over and seeing what feels right and what doesn't feel right. Um, and this is the first time I think that it's in person versus you know a post-pandemic kind of Zoom call. So what does it mean for you to take the stage and be surrounded by others uh, from across the country in the national semifinals and finals? Um, I think it's really cool that this year is um, in person versus the last few years, which have been online. I think it will be a little bit more nerve-wracking to have to perform in front of a lot of people, but I think I do a lot better on stage anyways, and so it should be fun to perform in Washington, D.C. Do you have a theater background, a debate background? Are there things that intersect with the Poetry Out Loud competition that feel like a natural fit for you? Um, I have a bit of a theater background. I've been doing different shows since I was probably seven or eight at the same theater that my coach um, owns. And so that kind of plays into all of the poetry that I've been doing for the past few years. All right. There's prize money at stake. There's bragging rights at, at stake. But we here in South Dakota are just so happy to support you and to cheer you on. Good luck in two weeks. Enjoy every second of the journey. Thank you so much. That is Grace Powell joining me from Vermilion Poetry Out Loud National Finals in Washington, D.C. coming right up. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on tomorrow's In the Moment. We are going to have John Hunter in for our Dakota Political Junkies weekly conversation. We'll talk about the renewed debate 
on open primaries. Is it renewed or is it uh, floundering at this point? We'll ask that question. And then we'll look at some issue memorandums and unpack what that means in the South Dakota State Legislature, whether it uh, shows us what might be ahead for uh, lawmakers this summer. John Hunter is with us for tomorrow's Dakota Political Junkies, that and much more. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening.